Hello and welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast where we take a peek behind the scenes into different fields of social work, engage and inspire practitioners, translate research into practice and encourage lifelong learning. I'm your host, Marie Vakakis. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. Welcome to episode 12 of the Inside Social Work podcast. I'm here today with Sarah Vandenberg and Sarah has been a social worker since 2006 where she completed her Bachelor of Social Work and she's worked in the community sector over the last 13 years. Sarah has worked mostly with children and adolescents, starting her career working with youth at risk of homelessness and going on to fulfil a range of different roles at various non-for-profit organisations, community health services and tertiary education providers. Sarah has experience in case management, counselling, group work and delivering school-based programs. One of her most rewarding roles was providing counselling to children and adolescents impacted by the 2009 Victorian bushfires. Sarah is currently working in a community health setting where she supports schools to help students remain engaged in their education. She's particularly interested in early intervention approaches to working with children and adolescents. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Marie. That was a pretty good bio there, but is there anything we've missed or did you want to fill in the gaps of anything? Uh, I think if you were to look at my CV, you would just see how varied um, and hodgepodge my work experience has been. Um, I, I feel like there's not many roles, especially in the youth sector, that I haven't given a go at some point, especially um, early in my career when I was trying to really build up some experience. So, yeah, that's probably my one reflection that's not captured in the bio. Um, did you want to talk about the role in the, you said you um, worked with the ad, children and adolescents impacted by the bushfires. Yeah. How did you get into that? What was that role like? Um, I actually had family that were impacted by the fires. So um, my first instinct when I uh, found out about it was not to dive right into working in that space, but more to support my family, more personally. Um, but after about six months, I really felt like it was an area of work that I was interested in and having that personal experience of seeing people go through that, um, some of whom were children at the time, really, um, I guess, motivated me to want to do something with that perspective. And so um, when the position came up locally in an area that I both lived and worked, I was really keen to take that on. Um, and I did that for, I think, about 18 months I was in the role. Like a challenging role. Uh, it's interesting you say that. I think um, because the roles that I had been doing previously were quite often with um, young people who were at risk of homelessness and quite often with resistant clients who didn't necessarily feel ready and able to receive counselling but may have been threatened to be kicked out of home if they didn't participate. Um, it was a really different experience moving into client work where the participants, the clients were all really interested and ready to start having conversations about their experiences and to really start processing the trauma that they'd experienced. So Absolutely, it was really challenging and there were some really difficult um, conversations and experiences um, to sit with as a social worker. But on the flip side of that, um, being able to do some therapeutic work with 
clients who were really ready to do that work was such a, a positive experience for me as a social worker as well. Did you have to do, or did you do any additional training around that? Yeah, um, it was really great actually. So um, the funding provider arranged a range of um, theories on working with children and adolescents who've experienced trauma. So we had uh, one of the experts in the field, Rob Gordon, doing a lot of sessions with us, uh, which was really valuable because there was quite a few people in that workforce that may not have had experience in that space before. There was a little bit of learning as we go, um, but certainly there was also just other previous work experience that I could draw on in that work also. Well, that sounds so um, and like you said, kind of a very rewarding, challenging role, but also, I mean, I know a lot of research came out of the bushfires in how we deal with mass trauma and mm. around debriefing both for individuals directly impacted and for staff. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I think um, we're seeing now there just seems to be more broadly an understanding of the impact of trauma on um, students in particular within schools. So it's fantastic to see, you know, um, fast forward a decade and that's something that I feel people more broadly are really aware of, that um, impact of trauma but also vicarious trauma as well. It's so interesting. I'd love to talk more about, I mean, we could have the whole episode just on um, sort of mass trauma. Absolutely. We moved on from there into a range of community health settings uh, and have wound up working with young people. So what was some of the things that led to you wanting to work with that age group or that population? I think for me, adolescence has always represented a time where uh, you're forming your identity and uh, having more choice uh, around the direction of your life and how you want to live. And so for me, it seems like a really opportune time to intervene. Um, the other thing that interested me about that was that quite often the adolescents that I worked with may not have had positive relationships with adults. So to be able to be that one positive influence in someone's life for a period of time where they might be going through something really difficult seemed like something I was really interested in doing and it's sort of a space I've stayed in now for quite some time in different ways, um, probably less directly with individuals or groups but more so at a more systemic level. But I think the essence of why I wanted to work with adolescence has really remained unchanged since the start. Um, I definitely agree with that. It's a really good area to put in some early intervention and especially working around education. That's such a, we know that's so beneficial for so many people. Absolutely. To prevent... It's a place where you find most young people uh, are, at least for some point in time, if not quite a lot of their lives, is within the school system. So it seems like a logical point to do some early intervention work as well. So tell me a bit more about, tell the audience a bit more about your role generally. What are some of the things that you're working towards and some of the um, either organisations and programs that you work with? Sure. So... Uh, Currently, I'm in a role that works um, with schools and also in partnership with community service providers to try and support students to remain engaged in their education. Um, And that can be either through capacity building activities, so perhaps some staff training um, to upskill school staff in 
working with um, students at risk of disengaging or it could be more direct program work with students. Um, and the type of programs that uh, and projects we deliver really depend on the needs of the students and the school community more broadly. Um, I feel like no one school is the same and their approach to supporting students at risk of disadvantage, um, at risk of disengaging, sorry, um, is always different. So, yeah, it's, it's the sort of role that always keeps you on your toes. <laughs> I imagine there's a lot of mis, um, misinformation about the kinds of things that cause people to disengage from school. When I speak to people uh, when I was working in the education area uh, about disengagement, that always would think sort of your 16, 17, 18-year-olds who just mm. want to drop out. But your program also works with primary schools. Yeah. So, um, so what are some of the things you're seeing that um, are impacting on students being able to engage in school with those younger students? Uh, it's a really great question. Um, so we, yeah, we do certainly support both primary and secondary schools. And um, in primary, it's your sort of upper primary, so grade five, six students. Um, and in the region I'm working in, we're seeing that things like uh, attendance rates, um, unexplained absences, are increasing from an early age as well. So from grades three, four, these patterns of um, poor attendance are developing and that can carry through with students um, right through to their secondary education as well. Um, in terms of people's perspectives of why students are disengaging from school, I think there's a really mixed level of knowledge um, in schools around what that reasoning is. Um, and I think your your example of your 16, 17 year old leaving because they've had enough of school um, is one example, but probably not the most common. Um, I would say students who are living in difficult family situations, it's probably the primary reason we see students not um, being able to either attend or remain at school whether they're experiencing family violence or they are caring for a parent with mental illness, um, they may have experienced a bereavement, they may be a young carer with um, care responsibilities that's making it difficult for them to attend school. There, there seems to be such a range of um, factors that can impact on attendance and engagement. And so part of our work is really getting to for particular schools, what is what is the issue? What is what is it that is making it difficult for students to remain engaged? And what can we do to try and address some of those barriers to engagement? So what are some of the kind of strategies that you've seen work really well? So what are some of the maybe more creative interventions that schools have utilised or implemented? Uh, I feel like there's such a range of different things that schools are doing. Um, the more creative ones aren't necessarily the ones that we've come up with ourselves. It could be particular, particularly motivated school staff members who um, have an idea and run with it. Um, maybe a recent example I can share is a program that we funded in a school with a group of young carers. Um, we'd identified that young people with caring responsibilities, and by that I mean they might have either a family member um, with a mental illness or um, drug and alcohol issues who they have caring responsibilities for. We know that that can make them highly at risk of disengaging from school and really difficult for them to um, 
have good attendance, for example, if they're having to take siblings to health appointments and that sort of thing. So um, we recently funded um, a community service to work within a school and support the young carers through the group work program. Um, and there was a really strong focus on building peer connections, uh, but also talking through some of the challenges of being a young carer and what that experience is like for them. Um, and the evaluations from that program were extremely positive and, and showed that um, I guess what we were hoping uh, students would get out of that program was achieved, which is fantastic. Wow. So it, it's so much more than just I don't want to come to school because whatever. Often there are so many different reasons and, like you mentioned, family being one of them, which is yeah. people, or for many of us, it's a, such a big source of strength and support um, but then can kind of come with, maybe that little bit of additional obligation if you don't have the right services to support you. Absolutely. Uh, what, are, um, what are some of the programs around anxiety? Because that's been something that's come up in previous um, podcast interviews. We're looking at a lot of discourse around increase in anxiety and um, mm. psychological distress. And I see that that's a lot of my private practice clients will, anxiety is probably the most common presenting thing and school refusals often a red flag for someone to start looking at what is happening for that young person? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and I, as you would know quite well, one of the um, interventions that we've been able to support within schools is training school staff in youth mental health first aid, which I think has been, you know, really valuable for the schools that have done it in terms of um, knowing how to support students um, who are experiencing either anxiety, depression or, or other difficulties. Um, some of the other examples of things that we've implemented for students with anxiety is um, we've used animal-assisted therapy. So there's a provider that uses uh, dogs who are trained and paired with a trained either educator or someone with a social worker or psychology background. And they deliver a program which is um, aiming to support students who may be experiencing anxiety. Some of the content covers things like mindfulness and self-care strategies. And we've seen that that's been quite effective, particularly with the younger, more, let's say, primary age students in um, supporting them in a way that's not a specific mental health intervention, um, but is certainly trying to intervene before it becomes really problematic for them. Well, uh, and they mainly dogs that you use? Yeah, this, in this example it is. But look, I've, I've heard of lots of schools using all sorts of animals in a therapeutic way as well. Um, but yeah, in this instance, it is with dogs, which are Gorgeous, gorgeous dogs. <laughs> I, tried, I tried to use a chicken once and the chicken pooped on the student's hand and so yeah. it had a very different um, <laughs> edge to the, the session. Maybe more sensory than therapeutic. In, in well, yeah. But I think, I mean, it, it can be such a circuit breaker and there's a lot of evidence around, um, especially the, the, the dogs that are trained in specifically chosen for animal mm -hmm. therapy, they yeah. have such an ability to help someone sort of regulate or the dogs can if someone's not able to kind of mindfully notice those things in their bodies mm -hmm. often the dog will indicate you're starting to get stressed or anxious yeah absolutely um and you just have to watch a dog being brought into a room to see the effect that that can have on people and how 
instantly engaging that can be, which, you know, as a social worker, sometimes engagement can be really hard work. So, yeah, sometimes I think, oh, they've, they've got the right idea bringing dogs along with them and, and maybe all our jobs would be that much easier if we could do the same. What are some of the challenges that come with working with so many stakeholders? So you have schools, you have local government, there's a range of sort of state-based legislations, and then you have people of different professions with different ideas and then Mm. young people and their parents. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, when you put it like that, there there is a lot of stakeholders and, um, and that in and of itself is really challenging, just trying to balance the needs and ideas and perspectives of everyone involved. Um, and I think, you know, in, in the work that I've done with schools, I've got to acknowledge that their workload is ever increasing, becoming more complex and challenging with each year. And, um, you know, there, there's so much great work being done, but I think my biggest learning in working with schools is just that you need to respect how busy a school can be as a workplace and how challenging that can be at times to really balance the needs of all of your individual students and your school community more broadly. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of challenges to work with, working with schools, but on the flip side of that, I'm lucky to have worked with so many really dedicated school wellbeing staff and other people in leadership positions as well who are really passionate about making improvements and trying to support students to stay engaged as well. So whilst it is challenging, it's also very rewarding work. It sounds like such a social work, um, almost like a perfect social work position because you're looking at individuals, groups, and systems in so many different ways. So it's there's so many opportunities there for intervention that perhaps other disciplines might not see the same way or we're just, it's almost like we're trained to kind of, that's like the perfect scenario of all those theories coming into place. Yeah, yeah. It, it is in some ways. Sometimes I think, oh, is it a social work role? Because I feel like a lot of what I'm doing is in more of the education space. But you're absolutely right. All, all of those social work theories that I learnt eons ago really do come into play in this sort of a role. Um, and as I think I might have touched on before, just, you know, viewing things in more of a systemic way and trying to impact on some of those systemic, systemic issues that are um, making life harder for students seems like a... a better way to have a, a lasting impact than some of the more individualised work that I've done earlier in my career. Mm. Do you miss um, the individual work? I do, actually, yeah. I um, I do think from time to time, oh, I, I need to go back. I don't want to lose those skills, um, you know, that working more individually as well. Um, but I think I've I've definitely satisfied that urge in different ways. So um, a couple of years ago, I did one of the university liaison roles where I was the liaison for social work students on placement. And it really took me right back to when that was me, you know, sitting in those meetings and doing those assessments and, um, you know, some of those early learnings that I had as a social worker just getting into the field. So, yeah, I think even if you are moving into different roles, there's still ways to connect back to, yeah, the individual and um, that that side of the work as well. 
While you've touched on the student placements, I guess we can stick with that a little bit. Is there anything you said it brought you back to it and you were in that position <laughs> sitting in and just observing all those meetings? Yeah. Are there some things that you you really wish you knew then that you just even you know now? Uh, oh, I think there's heaps of things that I've learnt that I wish I knew back then. Um, one of them is probably... I wish I could have sought out mentors earlier in my career and I think that's something that I've gotten better at over the years is really finding either supervisors or other colleagues that I could learn from and really taking as much as I can from that relationship and and using those mentors to grow myself professionally, Um, especially in a field like social work. I think the more people that you have supporting you and your learning, the better. Um, and I think, think looking back at that time when I was a student, I also think that there is an element of social workers also being expected in their personal life to be the social worker as well, um, which was really interesting and something that I, I didn't expect to happen. So I think I I wish I had learned a bit earlier that I don't have to be the social worker both professionally and in my personal life and that it's okay to have some really clear boundaries about what my role is within my family or within my friendships and relationships so that I didn't feel like I was always having to be that caring person for everyone else and perhaps Mm. not looking after myself as much as I needed to. That's a really interesting one because I I feel like that happens a lot where people Mm -hmm. who are in these roles or in a therapeutic role often have a bit of a I guess, a personal quality or an interest in it. So I tend to have that kind of pseudo-counsellor role in their group of friends or in their families. And then it's almost once you become professional or licensed or accredited that you think, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> like, you know, and, and it's really hard because if someone brings, you know, someone brings a young person to me like, oh, okay, so what do you think of my child? Do they need an assessment? It's like, I can't. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't want to be put in that position. Like it can be really hard to find yeah. that balance of, are you just venting or do you want me to direct you to someone or sometimes even we're so used to clients coming to us and problem solving that sometimes our friends even just want us to shut up and listen. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> so sometimes I, we I, I jump right into problem solving sometimes and forget that they're not coming to me as a professional. They're coming to me uh, more personally. So yeah, I, I feel better to know I'm not the only one that does that. <laughs> no, no. And it's interesting because then other times I have friends saying, that's not a response a social worker would say. I'm like, I'm your friend. I can <laughs> I can cut through the few, um, few months of building rapport and just say, that's being ridiculous. You can't do that. Yeah, yeah. We all need that friend sometimes too, don't we? I think, yeah, absolutely. But I, I think that's an interesting way of looking at boundaries because we often, and we've had podcast episodes where we've talked about boundaries around what you disclose to to clients, how do you Mm. implement self-care. But I think it's really interesting when you think about sort of the maybe the mental load or the role that you play within your group of friends and family that you might be easy to talk to. So people call you to vent and you're like, well, I've also had the kind of day where maybe I'm at capacity. So how do you juggle that without being rude and giving your friends the time and consideration that they need but also protecting your own your well-being and your what you can 
cope with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we know that the risk of vicarious trauma and burnout for social workers is extremely high. And, you know, as you said, if, if we have that sort of empathetic personality that people are drawn to us and, and seek us out for support in our personal lives as well, that, that can be really taxing. So, yeah, I, I think um, coming back to your question about what I wish I had have known is probably just that it's okay to not have to be the social worker 24 hours a day and that sometimes you do just have to switch that part of your brain off and even if you can be really helpful in solving other people's problems doesn't necessarily mean that you should. Mm. I find it... Um... I've flipped between being really empathic or depending on which role I'm in saying, well, you think you've got a problem. Let me tell you about the people I've worked with today. So sometimes I can be really like, it depends on, and maybe that's a bit of an indication of burnout as well. But when I look back on it, I think there's some people telling me about their problem at work. I'm like, work, you have a job. Have you seen, can I do me to tell you about one of the seven clients I've worked with today who are experiencing it? You know, you're looking at homelessness and, um, alcohol and drug dependencies and intergenerational poverty and cumulative yeah. trauma and harm and involvement with the criminal justice system. And here's my friend having a bad day because something kind of that lunch got thrown out in the fridge and it's the second yeah. time that month. Like, and you just think, really? But then when you come out of that, you're like, well, I get that because I hate when the fridge isn't clean, but then my lunch has been thrown out. Like you can. Yeah, it's you definitely have a unique perspective I think as a social worker and uh, you know some of those situations you described absolutely it's really hard to sit with some really heavy topics and then um, be understanding when people are dealing with the really little stuff Um, but yeah I guess it's it's all important. (laughs) Absolutely so you wish you knew um, so I like the idea of mentors and supervisors a lot of people have mentioned supervision but mentors and having peers is a little bit different so Tell me a bit more about what you've either managed to kind of sort out for yourself now or or what what role you're playing maybe for other new social workers. Mm, um, I think now I really seek out good supervisors and as much as, you know, when I might interview for a position, they're checking me out, I'm also checking out can I learn from this person and, and are they going to be a positive mentor for me? Um, But it can also be some of those informal work relationships that we have, you know, those professionals that you come across or you might work with that you think, oh, this is someone I need to keep in touch with. Even if our roles change, even if we're not in the same organisation, we need to keep connecting and sharing and, and talking about, you know, career progression and where we're going because there's something about having another social worker who really just gets your role and understands your work and has had similar experiences. So I'm really fortunate to have some of those people um, that I continue to connect with and I, I feel that I get so much so much from those relationships. Yeah, that's it's, so it's finding that middle ground of networking but then having a select few people that you know you can kind of tap into, pick their brain yeah. or who if you kind of want to run an idea or program by them, is that the kind mm-hmm. of thing you're... Yeah, or even, um, you know, I I went on maternity leave and had um, some children and then returning back to work, it was great to connect with another social worker who also recently returned back to work and talking about 
juggling working part-time and having a family and you know those sorts of things as well I think yeah connecting with people who um, can support you in different ways from your more formal supervision can be really valuable too. Sounds great. Do you find that that's one of the reasons that you were attracted to doing the liaison role at the universities to kind of start tapping into that idea for, for new people coming into the field? Yeah, I feel like I had I had a really mixed experience on my social work placement. So one of them was a really positive experience and I went on to get employment through that placement. And another one was a really awful experience where I, I didn't feel very supported and um, and I don't feel like I got the best out of that learning opportunity. So I felt like that gave me a, an interesting perspective to bring into that liaison role um, because I'd sort of seen both sides of the coin. Yeah, so when I, yeah, when I took on that role, it was really interesting to see, I guess, how students were applying theory in a really uh, in a range of settings as well. So we had um, students on placement in anywhere from a school to a hospital to a community health setting. So some of that was also just seeing um, maybe how social work placements worked in organisations I hadn't worked within as well. Yeah, I find I really enjoy that part of it as well and being able to see how people translate that research and knowledge and theory into different settings and often there's a lot of overlap there are also some very distinct skills to each one of those industries absolutely just touching back so rewinding a bit to if you don't mind just around working with um, young people in education Mm -hmm. you talked about sort of looking at early intervention approaches and trying to prevent disengagement how do you how do you find that you balance that with academic outcomes and then you know sort of the well-being kind of needs of students but also all those sorts of things around family situation um, ec- economics so whether they can afford to attend some of those things like all the different sort of reasons family trauma mental health mm. that we know are barriers to education yeah how do you how do you find you balance those because I'm I'm thinking of a lot of um, social workers or allied health staff working in schools. They might be the only allied health staff, so they often have a unique perspective and sometimes feel like they're between a rock and a hard place of trying to balance their employer's needs, which is the school, mm. but then they see the client as the young person yeah. and there's often conflicting needs and demands on them. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question, and I think I'm glad you I'm glad you pulled a question out of that because I just felt like I was rambling, and hopefully she can make sense of it. No, I think so. Um, I think in schools that are doing really well, there's a strong understanding that the connection between student wellbeing and their academics is really strong, and you generally can't have one with the, without the other. So. Um, There are schools where they understand that intervening and supporting students with their wellbeing is then going to have a positive flow-on effect uh, or is likely to have a positive flow-on effect on their academic wellbeing. And for that reason, they may be investing more in their wellbeing teams or in um, the interventions that they are supporting within their school. And then there are probably others that do have a bit of a, a 
longer journey ahead in terms of understanding the wellbeing needs of their students and, um, you know, in those schools, certainly a school wellbeing staff member would feel like they are stuck between a rock and a hard place, as you described, because, you know, if they are working in isolation, that's a really tough gig and um, you don't want to be the only person in your workplace beating the drum of uh, student wellbeing needs because, it's something that just cuts across, yeah, every every year level and, and um, the broader school community. There's, there's always going to be wellbeing needs. Um, obviously, in some areas, there are more than others. Um, but, yeah, that, that's always going to be there. There's always going to be family breakdown, trauma, um, child protection involvement. You know, there's not a school I've met yet that hasn't had that experience with some of their students. So, yeah, the, the better equipped schools can be to support students with that. Um, hopefully that means that the people in those wellbeing roles aren't so isolated and aren't, aren't doing that on their own. That was very beautifully answered. It must have been oh. the, the precision in which I asked the question that helped you come up with that answer. Must have been. <laughs> so what are some of the, I guess, frameworks or additional professional development that perhaps someone working in those roles could look into tapping into? Because mm. it, it must be hard to pick. There's, there'd be so many things that you could be working with potentially. So are you, have you noticed there are some skills in particular that are worth people refreshing or enhancing in those environments? It's a good question. I think for for people who've been in school wellbeing roles for a while that do have either a social work or youth work or psychology background, they're probably really well-versed in that space already. And so it's probably less about specific training and more about connecting into um, youth wellbeing networks or local council youth networks that are able to support them and give them that collegiate support of other people doing similar roles. Um, but perhaps for those people who are newly stepping into the wellbeing space or, or maybe do have a different, um, maybe more of an educational background than a social work background, um, there are so many different opportunities for training um, depending on whether you're at a Department of Education school or a Catholic ed school or an independent school, it will look a little different and the frameworks you use will be a little different as well. Um, we're seeing a lot of really great training coming out now for schools around understanding the impact of trauma or working with culturally diverse students and families. So there, there is that those training and opportunities out there. It's just a, a case of finding and also fitting that into your very busy schedule, I'm sure, <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So thinking about just some of those bigger trainings, are there any kind of general tips that you might recommend to someone. So, for example, if you don't have the time at the moment to do trauma training, are there simple things that you can just be mindful of even if you don't have the exact skill set to have that conversation with the young person? Uh, I think there, there are so many resources even online. So even if you can't get to a training, just doing some online modules is a great way to feel a little bit more upskilled in particular areas that you're not feeling as confident in. Um, so that would probably be my suggestion if getting out to training seems a little bit out of reach at the moment. Um, but also um, 
guess another really great opportunity is to use um, secondary consultation. So if you do have a challenging case um, and you're not sure where to go, contacting your local community service provider that might be doing work in that space. So it might be a local um, mental health service provider or it could be uh, your local centre against sexual assault um, and, and trying to tap into yeah, any opportunities for secondary consultation as well can be really helpful. I, that's a really good tip and I'll, um, I'll put some of those notes in the show notes. One of the things I found quite helpful and um, in my interview with Claire who um, works at Mental Health First Aid Australia, we were talking about sometimes the best thing you can do is to acknowledge that you're not the right person to have that conversation. Mm, yeah, I, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think that um, we're so used to being everything to everyone and, yeah, having those moments where you do take a step back and acknowledge that perhaps this is more complex than your role allows you to deal with um, is totally reasonable and, and probably in, in the best interest of your client to be able to acknowledge that sometimes as well. Absolutely. Um, so just kind of we've covered quite a bit already. I mean, to sum up, are there any sort of tips you would have for people in general working with young people or in the education system so we've got, you know, sort of mentoring and supervision and I and I found that particularly, I found that, that when I was in that system myself, I needed that more than I had anywhere else where mm. my line management supervision was from a teacher and assistant principal and while they had some overlap, often they didn't have the, the same theoretical framework and the knowledge to really support me but also, like I said, push, push me professionally to develop. So that mm. was the one time I felt I really needed to tap into those informal and formal support systems. Absolutely. Um, so we've got a little bit around understanding things like trauma and mental health, tapping into secondary consultation, any sort of other kind of parting words of wisdom? Um, I'm sure you've touched on this in some of your other episodes as well, but it's always going to come back to self-care, doesn't it, in, in any of these sort of caring roles Um if you're not able to look after your own health and well-being, then it's really difficult to look after the health and well-being of the people you're working with and supporting as well. So, yeah, that's that's probably just my parting message would be just to do whatever you need to to look after yourself and make sure that when you are at work that you're able to um, to do that and do that well and and in good health. That's um, that's something that every person that I've spoken to will mention and I still think there's a misunderstanding for those who are maybe new to the field or don't work in this area that kind of think they hear self-care and they picture, you know, um, manicures and pedicures and bath, baths and spas and fluffy slippers. Like they, they, they picture it to be this really big indulgent act that takes a whole chunk of time. Yeah. Whereas yeah. I, I see it especially in an environment where you're in constant demand and being in a school, you're very visible. So it's it's perhaps a little bit different to a service where you're outreach and then you can go back to your office. Mm. So for me, it's thinking more around having lunch at an appropriate time. So not eating lunch at 3.30 while I'm in the staff meeting. It's yeah. going for you know, a 15 minute walk to get a coffee. Sometimes I didn't even want the coffee. It was just to clear my head. So yeah. the self-care wasn't 
you know, this big indulgent thing. It was moments throughout the day where I could kind of com- not compartmentalize, but digest what just happened. Absolutely. Yeah. And recharge a little bit. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and even just catching those opportunities for a quick debrief after things have happened and, you know, updating people, um, you know, if, if you've had a really hard day, letting people know I've had a really tough day and I think, you know, maybe you need to be a bit kind to me right now. Um, as you said, it doesn't have to be this extremely self-indulgent thing, but it can be as well. Um, for me, I think a lot of my self-care is going home and, and binging on some Netflix trashy television, you know, like it's a big part of it for me, especially when I did more direct client work with opportunities to just switch my mind off and to not be thinking about um, some of the, the stories that I'd heard that day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really just whatever works for you as well and, and the sooner you find that out, I think the, the better your work-life balance is going to be. Absolutely. And I, I found what held me accountable and it's definitely made an impact lately is thinking this is the stuff I would recommend to to one of my clients. So mm-hmm. if I'm working with someone and I'm telling them the importance of well-being and exercising, <laughs> I have to I have to practice what I preach. So begrudgingly yeah. in the freezing cold weather today, I got up, went to yoga and then rode my bike to work. And oh, every minute of the day I was cursing, but I knew this is what I needed. To, and I feel I feel kind of smug about it now, but I feel good. Like in that moment, there's so much resistance, but knowing that you need to do that and for the rest of the day I'll have more energy and I can separate those different tasks because I've had a bit of fresh air. Yeah. It's absolutely. so important, even, even though every part of me was saying, don't do it, just sleep in this great. <laughs> well, I'm very impressed. I, I certainly wasn't doing that this morning myself. Um, one, one trick I do remember having, um, and it was at a time where I worked about half an hour from home in the uh, half hour's drive was I had a bit of a rule that I could think about work for that half hour drive but the second I got home I had to flip a switch and to just stop thinking about it because I didn't want it to start encroaching on my time at home and it wasn't always easy to stick to that particularly if there was something significant coming up or or something really challenging that had happened during the day. But as a general rule, that's something that I probably held on to pretty strongly throughout my career just to really, um, I guess, give myself that thinking time whenever that is in my day um, and then let myself know, okay, enough's enough, it's time to focus on what you need now. Yeah, that's such a great, that's such a great tip. Thank you. No worries. Um, Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people who find um, this niche of working in schools and education quite useful because it's a growing area and there's been a lot of attention over the last few years around uh, mental health in schools and schools seem to be at the brunt of every possible policy decision and change that we want. Schools are always the ones that cop that. So I really like that you also talked about, you know, the difficulty that, that teachers have trying to balance the needs of all the students, all the pressures mm-hmm. from competing and, and often are all very important needs and demands of different programs and outcomes and literacy and numeracy and wellbeing. Absolutely. It's a, it's a tough gig. <laughs> I've got a lot of respect for anyone that works within a school. Wonderful. Thank you so much.
Thank you. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed my podcast episode with Sarah. Some of the things she mentioned are in the show notes. You can go to www.insidesocialwork.com forward slash episode 12 for those notes. Don't forget to subscribe uh, on iTunes, leave a rating or a review. You can check us out in the Facebook group and join that if you're a social worker. And if you're interested in some of the training that Sarah mentioned, in particular the youth mental health first aid, you can go back and listen to episode 7 where I interview Dr. Claire Kelly about youth mental health first aid and episode 8 where I talk with Dr. Laura Hart about the teen mental health first aid program. Two really great programs that are often run in schools or for teachers, especially the youth mental health first aid one. That's all for me. I hope you have a lovely day. See ya.